Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Claire McInerney in for Bob Salzberg and Sarah Whitmire. I'm the education reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting, and today I'm hosting a special Noon Edition. More than a year ago, amidst all the reporting I was doing about education, I found myself asking one question over and over. What is it like to enter the teaching profession in Indiana among all the changes happening in education? So to answer it, I found a group of future teachers who were graduating college and starting their first jobs in the classroom. For a year, I reported on their experiences, sat in their classrooms, talked to their colleagues, their students, their spouses and girlfriends, and now fiancés. Today, they joined me here in the studio to reflect on their first year in the classroom. You can ask questions by joining our live chat online, following us on Twitter at Noon Edition, or by calling into the program at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. So first, I'm going to have the three of you introduce yourselves. So just tell us your name, where you teach, and what grade. And Sarah, we'll start with you. Okay, my name is Sarah Draper. I teach second grade at Helmsburg Elementary in Brown County. Okay. Uh, I'm Gabe Hoffman. I teach third grade at Nora Elementary, which is in Washington Township Schools in Indianapolis. And Chris, who's joining us by phone? I'm Chris Conway. I teach fifth grade at Riverside Intermediate, which is an intermediate school in Sisters, Indiana. Great. And so um, when I was looking for the three of you, uh, you all went to IU School of Ed, and I found you through a career coach or something over there. Um, but I gave him very specific parameters. Oops. Um, and so I wanted, because I wanted this reporting to not just be three teachers in the town that I live in or in Indianapolis or in one area. So I told him I wanted a rural, urban, and suburban you know, school teacher. So you guys all represent that. You know, Gabe, you're in uh, Washington Township, which is... Um, I mean, explain a little bit about what your school is in terms of income of the families that go there, the needs of the students, things like that. Sure. So Washington Township itself is like an incredibly diverse township. Um, the population really varies a lot from elementary school to elementary school. Nora itself has an extremely high population of Burmese refugees, um, actually, that live right across the street in a, an apartment complex. So we have um, almost a quarter of the school is Burmese refugees. Um, we have a lot of Hispanic and African-American students as well. Uh, I think over 80% of the school is on free or reduced lunch. So it's um, most of the families in our at Nora are low-income families who need a lot of support from the school and the staff. And we'll circle back to what comes with that. But Sarah, will you explain a little bit about Helmsburg and what the kids in the town is like? Um, Helmsburg Elementary is about 30 minutes outside of Bloomington. So Bloomington is kind of their big city, or Columbus is their big city. Um, so about 60% of our kids are on free and reduced lunch. Um, but it's very diverse in terms of uh, economics. Um, yeah. Okay. And then Chris, explain um, Riverside Intermediate up in Fishers. So Fishers is uh, very suburban, I would say, Probably 80% of our students are Caucasian, and most of them come from um, high middle-class families. We have probably less, I would say less than 20% of our, our students are on free and reduced lunch. Most of them come from families that do uh, pretty well income-wise. Great. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of my background before I dug into this reporting, those basic facts. And um, we'll talk about, you know, how things progress through the year and how those different situations affect things like parent-teacher conferences and testing and things like that. But I want to start with all of you. I was at your graduation last May, so more than a year ago, um, and, watched, I, you know, you didn't know me, but I was out there and I was getting audio, but um, watched you guys cross, walk across the stage as college kids. And now I feel like you've all grown up a lot and, like, learned a lot. So will you kind of talk about the expectations you had going into your first job um, as being a teacher? So I don't know who wants to start. Um, I expected it to be very difficult. I, I knew from day one that it was going to be a tough job. And I mean, we grew up and IU School of Ed, I think, does one of the better jobs of preparing you for what you're going to see when you get out in the school system. And you know, we get a lot of time in the classroom in a lot of different settings. I'd been in Mitchell, Indiana. I'd been in Chicago Public Schools, Indianapolis Public Schools. So we get to see a lot of different environments when we're in college. So I knew going in that where I accepted the job that there was a very diverse um, school district and it was going to be a challenge going in. I was going to have to meet a lot of different needs of a lot of students who 
were minorities, but also very different in culture. And I think that that was one of the challenges that I was excited about and, and openly accepted when I graduated is getting the opportunity to learn from my students as much as they learned from me and learn a lot about different culture uh, was something that was very important to me when I graduated. I would say I was not prepared for how exhausted I would be every day coming home from school. Um, I just had never felt that tired, like just not being able to move after getting home from a long day. Um, but I did expect it to be difficult, but I also, I thought I would get through things a lot more quickly. Like, um, I, I didn't, I underestimated the time that I would spend on lesson planning and just all of like the routine classroom things to, to keep your classroom going. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Chris? I know you student taught at the school that you ended up getting a job at. So did that influence your expectations at all? Yeah, I think because I student taught at the school that um, ended up hiring me. I think I already knew the expectations of school and exactly how it was going to be, but I still had those responsibilities as a full-time teacher that I didn't have as a student teacher. So I think the biggest thing that caught me by surprise were just all the little things that you have to do as a full-time teacher, not as a student teacher, such as how many parent emails you get each day and all the little things you have to get ready for student, you know, student-parent conferences and teacher conferences. And I think it was just I think the little things that I didn't have to do during student teaching is really what caught me by surprise with how much extra work outside of the classroom you have to do. So we're laughing in the studio because when you said all these emails you get, Gabe went, I got none. And so I think parent involvement is a big thing that I tried to talk about and that the different makeups of your schools really influence. So, you know, Chris, we'll start with you and then move to Gabe, but let's talk about parent involvement and how you as a teacher balance that through your first year. I remember last summer I did a... intro interviews with all of you and kind of talked about expectations and things like that. And one of the things you you mentioned was, I'm nervous about being a first-year teacher and having that confidence to talk to a, te- a parent and say, like, I know what I'm doing, um, or, you know, work with me so we can do the best for your child since it's your first year. So talk about how parent involvement played out throughout the year. Um, there were quite a few, like I said, I got quite a few emails. Um, well, I kind of feel like I had the two extremes. I either had parents that were really, really, really involved, or I had some parents that, you know, I would email and call them, and then I wouldn't ever hear back from them. I'd say the most of the parents in my district are very, very involved and want to know exactly what's going on in the classroom, which it can be nice and can be a little irritating at the same time. Um, anytime I needed volunteers, you know, I would always have more volunteers um, offers than I would ever need, but I would felt like a lot of times throughout the day I was always sending emails like this is you know this is what we're doing today this is how your student is doing and it's just very time consuming. Did you ever feel like because you were new and younger than teachers maybe I know your teaching partner Amy had been teaching for 20 plus years I mean did you ever feel like that came into a a parent questioning your abilities? I don't think so because a lot of the times when I would talk to a parent I would do it with my teammate Amy and she would usually take the lead because she's been teaching for 20 plus years. So because I had her, um, I don't think that that ever was questioned. If I hadn't had her there to know how to go about some of the situations, then I could have definitely seen it coming up. But I think most of the kids seemed to enjoy my class, which made the parents kind of trust me a little more as well. Good. And then, so Gabe, you mentioned earlier a lot of your class had um, I, like an individualized education plan. They um, were English learners, things like that. So explain how that you know worked with parents. I mean, did you have too many volunteers to choose from? <laughs> well, we have a really good core of parents, though, at Nora, who are unbelievable. Um, our dad's club and PTO is absolutely incredible, and the stuff they put on for the school and the community um, is awesome. So there's a lot of involvement in that in that regard that we do have a really good core. But when you look at everyday parent involvement, I had a few students whose parents were really involved in their education. I'd say maybe three or four were really involved, and they would email email me maybe once or twice a week. Um, a lot of the times making phone calls home, I didn't get a return phone call. Many students' parents don't even have an email address that were in my class to try to get a hold of. Um, but the thing that I found interesting is if there ever was something, we sat down at a parent-teacher conference or I had to call a parent, my side was taken immediately. There was never, there was never any pushback of, well, my child says this is going on, my, this is what's happening. It was almost immediate like, oh, thank you for letting me know. I understand. I'll talk to my, my kid. So it, it was interesting where I didn't have very many parents come in and volunteer um, and do things in the classroom. 
or contact me at all. If I did ever call a parent and need their support in something, I was the one who was backed. Or I feel like sometimes, Chris, you could you may have had an experience where if a kid said something, you got some pushback. I don't know. It could be totally different. But it's there wasn't a whole lot of involvement. I, it was it was like pulling teeth sometimes to get people to come into the school or get a meeting with somebody. Mm-hmm. And I mean that's huge, especially with IEPs. That's something parents need to sign off on. Correct. I mean you you create it as a, f- a family with the teacher. So. Um, I did a a big thing with you all about parent-teacher conferences, and that was interesting. I had you guys take audio diaries and just record yourself on your phones. Um, You know, Sarah, talk a little bit about because I know you're at your school. It was spread out over a few weeks, and so Mm -hmm. you were just kind of like, it never ends. Like it's like I can't wash my hands of this experience yet. So talk a little bit about how it went with you. Um, It went really well. Uh, It was kind of like pulling teeth to get the permission slips back, as far as like this is the time that I can come in and this is what time is going to work for me. And um, so that was kind of stressful. And then some, uh, I had a parent come in just in the middle of the day for their conference. And (laughs) so that was kind of unexpected and um, a little nerve wracking, but uh, everything went really well. Um, I was actually surprised by that. I, Parents had a lot of good questions, and I felt prepared to answer them. I think it's good that they were in October because then I had a few months to kind of get myself together and, like, figure out what I'm doing before, like, talking to parents about about it. So it, it ended up going really well. And this is, you know, a problem or not a problem, but an issue in education that's raised everywhere about parent involvement and, you know, getting parents there and, you know, and obviously um, – areas or where the school is and things like that affect a lot of it. And so for you all, you know, going into this next year, is there anything in terms of like how you communicate with your parents or how you try to get them in that you learn this year that you're like, okay, maybe next year this will be a better strategy? Um, I can say that I learned a lot that um, parents are going to respond a lot better when you're more positive, when there's more often something positive coming home than something negative. So I tried my best last year as a first-year teacher. You know, you're caught up in a lot of stuff, staying after school, trying to get a lot of stuff done. So it's hard to keep up with making those phone calls home as much as you can. So I set a personal goal this year of making um, three positive phone calls home a day. No matter uh, what happened in the classroom that day, I was going to make three phone calls to a parent or an email or whatever their preferred method of communication of something good that happened for a certain student in the classroom every day. And it may be something minor. So-and-so did a really good job focusing during reading today. I wanted to let you know that. Just because in our in my environment, parents were much more likely to show up for a meeting, respond to you when, when there were more positive contact home than there was negative. Did anyone else learn anything that you wanted to share? I, would uh, agree I totally with agree with Gabe on that one where he says that if you, you know, give parents positive information, they're more likely to, you know, communicate better with you that. Uh, I totally agree with that. What I like to do is I don't do phone calls. I do emails because they're a little quicker. But anytime a student achieves higher on an assessment or a test than they normally do, I like to send home a, an email to the parents just so they get a heads up, and they usually seem to appreciate that. This week we're talking to three first-year teachers. Let us know if you have questions or comments by participating in the live chat on WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, tweeting at Noon Edition, or you can call into the program at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. So one thing that uh, I, I did a story on, and it was really interesting to see this unfold throughout the year was your guys' support systems and how going through a first year of teaching, I mean, many of you talked about getting to school at 645 and, you know, not leaving until it was dark out in the winter and sitting with your significant others on the weekend and grading papers together and things like that. Um, And so I think it'd be really valuable to bring that up again and just talk about when you're going through the first year of teaching why it's important not to do it alone. And so, Sarah, you know, the story I did with you, I loved because I got to interview your husband and involve Ben and hear from his side. And he, um, both Gabe and Chris are engaged to fellow teachers, but Ben is not. He's a PhD student. And so for him, he was like, I don't understand chart boards or whatever it is she's talking about, but I'm here to support her. So kind of explain how he helped you through this first year. 
Um, he has been an awesome help. It's it's so funny because I'll t- I'll bring him into my classroom and he just looks around. And he's like, "What do I like? How can I help? Like, what am I supposed to do?" So I find if I give him a very clear task, like when we're uh, in my classroom, like, oh, you're going to put labels on these folders. And he'll do it. He'll get it done fast. And he's like, okay, what else can I do? So I think, I don't know if that's rare, but I he is an awesome support for me, just like actually going to my classroom with me. And on the weekend, if I have to grade, he's like, oh, well, I can, you know, I always have work to do at home too. So he's just been great. Well, what about like the emotional support he gave you? Because obviously every first year teacher isn't married or, you know, has a significant other, but there's people in their life. And so how can you lean on someone um, during a really stressful time? Because it's not just any first job. It's a first job where, you know, politically, it's really important the, for the parents and the kids. It's really important. And I'm sure the, the pressure is there. So how do you lean on someone else to make sure that you're OK as you get through it? Well, um, I would say I would come home with like a crazy story and I was just, you know, thinking about how, you know, I just hadn't had the best day and it was just and for him, it is just like, wait, so a kid threw a chair like what? Like, he just can't really grasp it. But he's like, that's hilarious. <laughs> and so I think it just kind of helps to, like, find that balance between, like, it's not the end of the world. Like, it's okay. You had a bad day, but, like, tomorrow's a new day. So an eight-year-old called you a poop head. Yeah, but, exactly. You know, we're going to be okay. Right, exactly. Well, and Gabe and Chris, will you guys talk about dating fellow teachers and how that time schedule, you know, multiplied by two kind of worked out? Chris, do you want to go first? Or you want me to do it? I'll go ahead. Um, I think it really helped dating a teacher just because when you do come home and you have, you know, those rough days, like Sarah was saying, like, they understand. And when you, you know, they understand the lingo when you come home and you're like, okay, like, you can't do anything tonight. I have all these papers to grade. I think it was just Amanda was very understanding all the time because she was going through, you know, the same thing in her first year teaching as I was. So I think it's nice to just have one that someone that fully understands, like, what you are going through. I think that made it a lot easier. Okay. I, I would agree with that. I think that, you know, a lot of times if sometimes if you're re- extremely busy, people who are outside of the world of education don't really understand why it is you're so busy and you have so many things to do all the time. So it is nice, um, well, now being engaged, but it was nice dating someone who was a teacher just because she didn't understand that. But at the same time, with us both being coaches, it was horrible for us schedule-wise. I mean, in the fall, a lot of the time, you know, we would get out of school and I would stay after and take care of some stuff. But she had volleyball practice and then nights they had games, they wouldn't be done until 9 o'clock. So there were times we went seven or eight days without even being able to see each other and barely talk to each other. And then when springtime rolled around, I started coaching baseball and it was the same scenario with me. Um, she would be done earlier in the day, but I would have stuff going on after school. So that that part of it was hard, and not to mention our spring, our breaks barely lined up at all. So a fall break, I had a whole week off. I went to California, and she was still in school, and then she had two weeks off when I was in school. So because she was in a different district. Yeah, she's yeah, yeah and on the complete other side of town. So that that part was tough, but now that we're engaged, um, we should be able to spend a lot more time with each other, and hopefully this year, we have it's more. We could see each other more than we did. Mm-hmm. And I know all of you um, talked about the colleagues at your schools. Like, you, you probably wouldn't have made it through the first year without them because they gave you so many resources. I mean, talk about um, the difference between, you know, working with a veteran teacher and being a new teacher because in the last just five years, education in Indiana has shifted quite a bit. So if someone's been in this in this field for 20 years they've seen a lot of these changes and so did you guys ever see that playing out in terms of like um, how a colleague addressed something and how you were approaching it and Chris I know you're you taught a fifth grade class where you guys split the subjects completely and Amy you know had taught for 25 years so maybe you should start Uh, yeah so I taught math and science and then Amy taught all of our kids language and social studies so as far as lesson planning and how to go about the actual teaching of math and science i had to rely on a lot of the other teachers in the building to just go ask questions to questions to or to share lesson plans with but luckily i already knew all of them from student teaching there so that was very helpful but amy just having taught for 20 some years she you know she's seen everything so if we had an incident one day she would say okay you know this is how we need to go about handling it and it might, you know, sometimes it might be a little different than the way I want to, but I always notice that usually when we went with her plan, you know, it worked out really well because she had been there and she'd, 
handled a situation similar at some point in her career. One of my favorite anecdotes from you about Amy, because uh, you taught fifth grade, so 11, 11-year-olds. Um, yeah, I turned 11 during yeah. fifth grade. And so I asked you, you know, what what's the biggest thing that she's really helped you with? And you were like, how to deal with girls of this age. And so you talk a little yeah. bit about, like, um, how you know, how she helped you with that. So I thought going into it, I was like, all right, they're 10, 11 years old. You know, they're not 13, 14 year old. You know, we're not going to have any girl drama at all. And I was completely wrong. <laughs> um, so just working with a female teacher and team, a teacher that has taught for a while is just, she knew how to handle, you know, all the girl drama that goes on once they get to middle school. And she pretty much just said, we just need to nip it in the butt. As soon as it starts, you know, you tell them this is not okay at school. And you just got to cut it out right away. But with our all of our kids having iPads now, uh, they can all message and text each other at home, which I think is one reason that that is the girl drama starting a little earlier than it did back when I was in, you know, fifth or sixth grade. Yeah, definitely. I will, Gabe. And before we started, you were saying your classroom this year, it's twelve of fourteen are girls, and last year it was a little more balanced. Is that something you're worried about? For third grade, yeah, I, I have six boys. It's six it's boys. 12, okay. it's, yeah, it's twelve. Twelve of eighteen, I believe, are okay. girls, which is very different because I had more boys yeah. than girls last year. And I think typically my personality <laughs> migrates more towards being good with uh, young men, just because I'm like love super, superheroes and sports and all that. And um, but at the same time, I think management wise, I think the girl students I had last year typically were at the age of eight or nine mm-hmm. are a lot easier to manage because they're not quite as rambunctious. Yeah. And they don't move around as much. And they're, they're more at, last year, the girl students I had were more like, it seemed like willing to try to please me than, than the boys were. So that, that's an interesting dynamic for me this year is that change from having more male students to more girl students. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break, but uh, before we leave, you're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and we want to hear your questions and comments for our guests. Give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us a tweet at Noon Edition or join our live chat at WFIU.org slash noon edition. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Claire McInerney, the education reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting. Today, I'm hosting a special show here on Noon Edition. Three first-year teachers that I followed for the last year and reported many stories on about their experience are joining me, two in the studio, one on the phone. And we're talking about what it's like to be a first-year teacher in Indiana, the lessons they've learned, and how they're moving forward in their career. I'm joined by Sarah Draper, who is a second-grade teacher at Helmsburg Elementary in Brown County. Gabe Hoffman, who is a third grade teacher at Nora Elementary in Indianapolis, and Chris Conway, who teaches fifth grade at Riverside Intermediate in Fishers. Um, before the break, we were kind of talking about you know makeup of classroom and things. And um, when I was trying to find you all and just casting this wide net to find uh, I use you know school of ed graduates who had jobs in these specific places. I imagine three teachers like Sarah because as an education reporter, when I go to classrooms, it is always females. Um, that's just the majority of the teaching profession. And so when I got the list and it, I had two male teachers teaching elementary school, I was like, 
I found the two unicorns that I haven't found in the year, you know, the years I've been reporting on this. Um, and I know I talked to you guys about this a lot, and you had some really good stories about teaching young boys and being a male yourself and things that the parents said to you. And I, I think those are, like, worth sharing. So I don't know um, who wants to start, but the effect that you had um, being a male teacher in the elementary school, having it be so rare. I guess I can go ahead first. Um it's fun. I think you see a lot of students, especially at Nora, who come from single-parent households and, uh, or they get to only see their dads on the weekends. So I think that being that, that positive male role model that they get to be around a little bit more um, is incredibly um, important to them but also to you. It's knowing your role is important to those kids. And when you look at Nora, we have two male teachers that are gen ed teachers in the whole building. So I also think you ha- you have generally the boys wanting to be in your class because it's just so rare for them to get to, get to have a male teacher. Um, but there were a couple in particular that um, really took an interest in my life and sports and baseball and everything. And the really awesome thing was a huge hockey fan. I'm a huge hockey fan. Nobody at Nora is a hockey fan. Miss <laughs> Russikoff, the teacher next door, is a huge hockey fan. So we had, and we had a kind of a rivalry between my classroom and her classroom. But to see the amount of boys in my room who all of a sudden became hockey fans was was hilarious. And that would bring in pictures of hockey players that they printed off at home that they wanted to show me and put on my wall and everything. And so just seeing stuff like that, you realize that they are watching you every single day and the way you act, the way you talk to other people, other adults. It's it's always important because those kids are watching you and you're somebody they have to look up to. Mm-hmm. And Chris, what about you? Uh, I would definitely agree with Gabe on that one. The reason I went into teaching is because I wanted to be able to be you know, a positive male role model, especially for those kids that unfortunately you know don't have it don't have a dad or don't see their dad as often as they want to um one thing i noticed also is that a lot of times just a male voice makes a difference um if kids are kind of you know goofing around if they hear that deep male voice i feel like they automatically just kind of turn and pay a little more attention but uh kind of along the lines that gave said, it's just really cool to see some of the younger men some of the younger boys trying to you know kind of trying to be like you or they'd write you notes and you know I want to grow up like you and that just really touches your heart and lets you know that you're you know, you're doing the right thing and you're in the right profession. Um, and Chris was it you or was it you Gabe that a, a mom reached out to you and kind of like cemented that that sentiment? Who it, was it? It happened with one of my students. Okay. Yeah, she came in for the iRead meeting. We had a meeting to talk about what to expect on the iRead. And she was like, oh, Mr. Hoffman, I just we feel like you're a member of our family now at home. And that he comes home every day and he has some funny joke that you said that only he understood. And yeah, this this student and I had a pretty, like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sarcastic person. So I, I try not to use it in my classroom as much as possible just because eight, nine-year-olds don't, you know, it generally goes right over their head. And mm-hmm. Um, something could come across the wrong way, but I had one. I said something really sarcastic one time, and this student like laughed out loud really hard in the back of the room because he got it. Um, and and so he he always wanted to talk to me when he came in the door. Left, so I kind of built up a pretty good relationship with him and his his mom as well. She liked to. She was one of the more involved parents in my classroom. That's cool, um, Sarah. One thing that I had you write kind of like a guest piece for our website and that thing blew up and got shared everywhere and it was probably one of the most popular things that I've like published on our education site in the last year and it was the loan like the sentiment was why it's lonely to be a second grade teacher um, so will you talk a little bit about what it's like to be a Jenna teacher in a lower grade in elementary school and kind of rehash some of the things you brought up because obviously so many teachers related to it and we're like this is the kind of stuff we we want to see like being put out there so yeah so um i guess that was one thing i wasn't prepared for because during my student teaching um in kindergarten we always had an aide in the room and we and my uh host teacher i was with her a lot too um so then when i got to my own classroom i'll go all morning without talking to anybody but a seven-year-old and um <laughs> it's just it's so funny because you just end up I don't know, making, I guess you end up making stronger relationships with your students that way because they're your only friends to talk to. (laughs) So, um, I don't know. I just, it is, it can get lonely, but then at the same time, whenever you have a break, either during lunch or after school, it's fun to just talk about your day and. Well, did that contribute kind of to 
what you mentioned earlier, if you get home and you're like, and this kid threw a chair and da 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 da, because that was your world for right. nine hours that day and you didn't see another adult who was like, oh yeah, that's crazy. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think like sometimes I just like unload when I see someone. I'm like, I've had all these thoughts all morning and I haven't been able to get them out. And so, yeah, I think that definitely happens. Yeah. Did either of you guys, you know, experience that, what she's talking about? Um, Yes and no. I think with with Nora's very close knit, mm-hmm. and so generally, like when we ate lunch, we had a we had a my schedule. We had a really long break in the middle of the day. We had like a two and a half hour break in the middle of the day because we had lunch and then specials and then recess, and so they were all back back to back to back. And so we did spend a lot of time during prep, like planning and doing things together. But you know, and at lunch, there's a lot of conversation happen, and generally, most of my friends that I hang out with outside of school are teachers as well. And so we would get together on Fridays after school and go grab food and everything, and it would be talking shop too. But <laughs> so I felt like I, and I'm also in an urban setting, so I have a feeling probably being in Brown County, you don't get to see as many people as often as we do because we're right next door to each other in in Indianapolis. So I talk to a lot of people a lot of time, but when you're in your room, yeah, it's okay. it's trying to find a way to relate to nine-year-olds or like being in a conversation about something particular and then somebody else something totally random and trying to get the conversation back on track you you I learned I have a lot more patient for children than I do adults um, by having those kinds of conversations so mm-hmm. well and that kind of brings up something I think is is fun to talk about one of the stories I did I can't remember if it was first or second semester but it was about probably first the the things you learned and that you thought would be a really good idea and then when you meet your kids and know how your group functions you know how you have to adjust and so I know I went to your classroom Sarah and watched you do a reading workshop thing and you were like yeah this is something I've been trying to develop and you know Gabe this is the infamous day that (laughs) uh, you know we were talking about this before it was a day where his kids were one of the more misbehaved of the whole school year and it was I happened to be there with my microphone and he was trying to play a game and just had to shut it down so it was great radio for me but um, but it just kind of showed like what you learned and what you thought might work Um, you had to readjust and so will you guys talk about those those changing on the fly things you had to do like you might think this is how I'm going to teach that math lesson that's really cool idea I saw this on the internet and then my kids can't handle it and how how that plays with your confidence and your creativity having to constantly change your tactics who wants to start? Um, I would say as soon as we got the manipulatives out, like... Explain what that is. Oh, sorry. Like uh, <laughs> math tools. So like uh, ten, 10 rods and uh, just one cube and then 100 flats. Um, I had to be very careful with those. And so I had one day, I thought I was doing everything right. I had one day where I just let them like explore with them. Like, you know, like here are the tools that we're going to be using. But right now you can just, you know, play with them. Just get to know them. And so then the next day... You know, I actually wanted to use them, and I kept saying, remember, these are tools, not toys. These are tools, not toys. And <laughs> they were toys. <laughs> and so <laughs> I ended up, like, collecting them all, and we talk- We had a talk. And-, and this took a long time. I collected all of them, and then we had a talk. And these are tools, not toys. And I passed them back out, and it ended up going okay after that. But it's just, they just need so much practice, so much routine before you can trust them with <laughs> manipulatives while you're trying to teach a lesson and have them work as well. Mm-hmm. And Gabe, do you want to give more context about the, the story we were talking about? So yeah, we were playing a review game. I play, if you've ever seen the TV show One Versus 100, we play that um, to do, we would do that at math review at the end of units. So when we got to the end of unit and an assessment was coming up, we would take some time and we would do that. And there was one day we were playing it and what was not captured on the radio was how many chances I gave my students before I kind of like it was like, all right, that's it. We're done with the game. But, you know, it was very positive, calm tone for about the first few times. And then it was a warning. And then I said one more time, okay, if if this happens again, we're done with the game. And it happened like literally 30 seconds later. <laughs> I was like, nope, we're done. That's it. And I put everything away. Um, I think that one of the big things that I learned with that is just every class is so different. And you might have a plan or an idea going in that you've seen work in another teacher's classroom or that worked in your student teaching, and then you get there and it doesn't work at all. And it's because your students are just completely different. And when I student taught, my students worked very well in a less structured environment. Uh, um, This is what you have to do. You don't have an assigned seat. 
go find a spot and get this done, and they would go be quiet and do it, whereas my class last year needed every bit of structure. This is how it's going to be. You need to be doing this at this time, in this spot, at this location. And by the end of the year, I learned that that was how that group had to be, and they had... I still I found ways to give them student choice and freedom within my daily routines, but at the same time, it was a more structured environment. This year, I'm going to try again at the start of the year um, with a more open concept with students not having an assigned seat, but just having an assigned table, and we'll see how it goes, and I may have to adjust on that. I just think it's important to know that every class, every student is completely different, and you may have a plan for something, and it may go completely by the wayside. Explain, though, as you're learning that lesson, how it can be frustrating, and does it mess with your confidence at all? It's, if you try something that you think will be good, and then it just bombs. Well, I think the thing that, for me, that was really frustrating about it is you have all this other stuff going on in the middle of the school year. So trying to make that adjustment on the fly is incredibly hard because you've got this structure you set up, and it takes so long to get second, third graders familiar with the routine. So you've got this routine you set up. It doesn't work. It takes a couple of weeks to set the routine up, and then you're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this out. We're going to try a new routine, and then it takes two or three more weeks to set that routine up, and then you have to balance setting up a routine with making sure you have enough instruction time and you're getting the proper amount of work done, and on top of that, you have to prepare them for I-Step and I-Read and all that kind of stuff and focus on other parts of the day. So it, it's just very t- it was very hard to make those changes throughout the middle of the school year, and I made a huge change during winter break. Um, I had the two weeks to kind of sit in, reevaluate it, and start from fresh with my reading block the next semester. And the, cha- the, the ability of the kids and the way they handled reading block was incredible. Um, but it's just very hard to try to balance everything all at once and throw in all these changes when they are used to something being a certain way, and then all of a sudden that's different. On today's Noon Edition, we're talking to three first-year teachers. To share your comments or questions for them, log on to the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition or tweet us at Noon Edition. You can also call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. Sarah, I know you kind of you struggled a little bit at um, a certain point in the year in terms of the things we were just talking about, um, am I, I, and this is the thing, uh, I came back from this interview, I came to your house and I asked you all to use six words to describe what you've learned so far or something like that, like how it was going. And you, your phrase was, am I doing the right thing? And so explain a little bit about when you found yourself questioning yourself or um, you know, questioning whether you were in the right profession or if you were in the right age level or things like that. Um, I would say, Definitely would happen like during the middle of a lesson and I'm just like watching them work after I've done the mini lesson. I'm like, wait, did they, are they getting this? Is this, do I need to go back and do I need to gather them all back? They're all in their spot. Do I need to gather them all back and reteach it? And I did end up doing that sometimes, but, and then it's, it's, I'm always so nervous. Like before they take a test, I'm like, did I teach you well enough? Like, do you really know how to do it? Like, is this going to be really hard for you? And so I think. It was just always questioning my ability and just based on like what they were producing, the work that they were producing. And um, so I think that was just stressful. Yeah. And Chris, what about you? I mean, were there times where you you, you stepped back and were like, is, is this okay? Is this right? Uh, I had some similar things like Sarah. So like going into test, I had those situations where I was like, okay, like they're going to rock this. We did, you know, I feel so good about these lessons. And then they would absolutely bomb the test. You know, as a whole group, or vice versa, where you know, I was like, "Oh, this is a pretty hard chapter." You know, I don't know if I taught this as well, and they do really well. And then it was just kind of what I had to learn is to pick their brains. I would come back and I would ask them, "Okay, what did you like that I did? What was understanding? What what was confusing?" And I just I learned that even though they're only ten year olds, like you can just learn so much from them about your teaching. So I really got uh, into the habit of asking them, "What do they like that we're doing in class?" You know, what they don't like, so I can kind of adjust my lesson plans from there to make sure that, they, that they're enjoying what we're doing and that I'm doing what's best for their learning. So one thing, um, this project was, it kept me sane through a lot of things, I will tell you that, because it was so fun to come to your classrooms, watch you guys teach, get to know you as people. I mean, Sarah, I would always go to your house because we live near each other. Um, 
But this was in the midst of covering the legislative session. And a big thing that's going on right now in terms of politics is talking about I-STEP and things like that. And so I'd love to talk to you guys about your on-the-ground personal experiences um, administering I-STEP and dealing with I-READ and things like that for the first time. So, Sarah, that doesn't really apply to you because second grade um, in Indiana is the last year that they don't take it. But... Gabe, you kind of had the double whammy. Third grade is when they take I-STEP for the first time. So the kids and you were experiencing it for the first time. And then they also take I-READ, which is a standardized test about reading. So talk about either the pressure or the preparation or all the things that come with trying to go into that testing session in spring. And we also took for the first time the NWEA online test, too. So we had to throw that in there, too. Um, Because why not? (laughs) There's a lot of pressure in third grade, Um, not just because... There's always pressure for the I-STEP, but it's also the first year they take a standardized test. So kids have never had to take a test of this length, um, of this difficulty, and so, and it's all third grade level work. So you have a lot of kids, especially at Nora, who are ENL students who receive support um, and help on in certain areas, and then they get to the I-STEP or I-READ, and it's all on third grade level. They're, they've been reading at a level, you know, below, a couple grades below, and you've been working on raising that level, but there's nothing you can do once they get to the I-READ. They've got to read the passage on their own. Because I'll interject in Indiana, if you are an English language learner where English isn't your first language, the test is not adapted to your native language. You you take the same test that every third grader across the yeah. state. You may get a certain accommodations mm-hmm. with the test, but yes, you take the same test. Mm-hmm. So. It's just difficult to try to prepare them for that. So a big thing we worked on is just the stamina piece, being able to read longer and not get discouraged. You have a lot of kids who would start to shut down in the middle of the test and trying to teach them strategies of when I get to something that's too hard and I'm starting to shut down, what can I do to calm myself and kind of get back? Because you can't stop the I-STEP test. Once you start taking it, you've got the time limit and then you're done. And then we also tried to focus on teaching skills. We didn't teach to the test. I mean, you can't teach. We didn't teach to the test, but trying to focus on skills that we know are important and may come up on the test. So being able to read a question and find an answer in the text strategically and not just reading a question and going, okay, I'm going to read it. I'm reading the questions first, teaching that kind of thing. So students have an idea of what they need to do. So you're really teaching a lot of test taking. Um, with the material that you're trying to teach because they get to third grade and there's just not a whole lot of strategy built up for taking those standardized tests. Does that ever get frustrating because, you know, Chris, you might not have to do that as much since by the time the kids get to fifth grade, they've taken it twice. But for you, Gabe, they haven't been exposed to it and you have to take instruction time to be like, it's the software looks like this. This, you know, it's going to be phrased in a different way than my tests look or things like that. Did that ever get frustrating or did you find you had enough time to do both? It was frustrating. Uh, I just think you come in with these, you know, especially your first year, wide-eyed with all these lovely ideas and lesson plans that you want to try to do in your classroom. Then you find out in reality there's just not time for some of them or um, the students aren't getting some of them. So it's it's hard to want to be really creative with some of your lessons and knowing, well, I don't. this is kind of experimental or more fun. And we take the I-step in a few weeks. Do I really have time to try this lesson that, you know, might not be as... And, and the, in, in my opinion, kids need those lessons. They need to know that school's fun sometimes and not just we're going to sit down and we're going to do the same thing every single day until you beat your head against the wall. Um, so it is frustrating to have to teach test strategies and take time that you could be doing some other stuff to do it. And Chris, what about you? What, what was your experience going through it for the first time yourself, but your students were experienced with it? Um, the thing I noticed is, Obviously, I was nervous, too, because part of my evaluation depends on how they do an I-STEP, but I just, like Gabe said, I had to play around with my lesson plans because I wanted, you know, I had a certain order I was planning on going in, but then I said, well, you know, I have all these things I have to fit in and I-STEPs in two weeks, so I did have to cut out, you know, some more fun activities or, you know, I had to get, fly through fractions faster than I wanted to be, so I just, there's a lot of pressure on my side, and then I noticed the kids feel a lot of pressure too just that word itself brings a lot of anxiety to them uh, almost every morning of i-step because multiple days i'd have a kid come up to me and, you know mr Connolly, i don't feel good i feel like i'm going to throw up and it's just because they're not sick it's because they're just they're so nervous about it they feel the pressure from that word you know i i tried my best not to put pressure on them you know not to tell them to do their best but at the same time you know i'm nervous because their scores uh, affect my evaluation and then but we also take NWEA at, and they take it at the beginning of the year so they get a base score 
and they take it again later in the year, and they have to grow so many points. And I noticed that at the beginning of the year, uh, a lot of that, a lot on the test stuff we haven't covered. So it's kind of hard to keep their confidence up when they're taking a test over stuff they're going to learn later this year. Oh, you know, like says, well, I, I yeah. feel like I don't know anything on this test. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain to them, well, you're not supposed to. Right. I was going to say NWEA is a test, like the name of a test that many schools use is like take a temperature for listeners who aren't uh, familiar. And it's it's mainly it's just used for teachers to check in and be like, what do you know? So like Chris is saying, um, take it at the beginning of the year, pre-test, post-test type thing, but it doesn't count toward a state requirement. Um, So anyway. Uh, yeah, and I, I know that you all talk and I talk to teachers all the time for my job, and this is something that comes up a lot, is trying not to put that pressure on them, um, even though this test is really important now. Um, Chris, and we talked about this a little bit, things you were doing or things you saw the kids picking up that they knew it was important that you were trying to downplay leading up to the administration of ISTEP. Yeah, just because they would ask, you know, because I tell them, like, okay, we're going to do this, you know, the next day in class, it sounds fun, but then I was like, oh, I, I don't know if I have time to, you know, spend this one extra day on this. And they'd ask me, you know, well, why why can't we do this? And I I would tell them the truth. I'd say, you know, well, we have ISTEP coming up. We have to fit all this in. And then also they would notice I would set up the classroom differently on the days of ISTEP just so their desks aren't next to each other. And I think just that whole environment might have probably added some anxiety to them, but also just lets them know that, you know, we take this seriously and, that they need to as well. And I'm sure that they hear the teachers talking in the hallway about it and they just, you know, they hear about it for a couple of weeks leading up to it and it just becomes this big ordeal that kind of sits on them for a while. Mm-hmm. Do you guys find, because right now at the state level, they're rewriting the test again. Um, and a, a thing I'm hearing a lot is this isn't necessary for teachers. It's necessary, you know, for us up here. Um, teachers know how their students are doing. I mean, is that something you feel like um, is true? Do you feel like these tests give you something really important that you're not getting from other measurements you use in your classroom? No. <laughs> I, mean, okay. I think the NWA is extremely beneficial. I mean, again, that's not a state standardized mm-hmm. test, but that shows you targeted areas kids are struggling with and you can actually use it to enhance your small group instruction, etc. Um, the I-STEP, we don't even have the results yet. The <laughs> teachers don't even have the results yet. So taking that test, I mean, I don't understand like how that benefits me as a teacher, um, this year with the group I have, I'm going to have a completely different group next year who might need different different areas of instruction. So to me, the ISEP is a way to measure teachers almost more than it is to measure kids. It's a way to measure how we're doing our job, um, which is tough. I think iRead is a little bit more immediate at the third grade level. I can look at their iRead. We get the iRead scores back quickly. I can look at um, what areas the kids struggle on so if if because it breaks it down to different sections so if i can see a kid struggled with homographs i know that that's something i need to touch on before the end of the school year because the students who don't pass get the chance to pass it in the summer um, but the i step itself i just it's i don't think it's very beneficial in my classroom level at all mm-hmm. chris did you have anything to add on that i would agree with that and like gabe said i like the nwa better because for instance, I had a student this year that moved in from, you know, a different state, and their math was probably at about a second or third grade level. Well, the ISEP is testing, you know, can they do fifth grade math? Well, no, the student wasn't going to be able to do fifth grade math, you know, and that's going to make me look poorly as a teacher. But when a student comes in and, you know, is still in a second or third grade level, I'm going to get them to grow a lot. But, you know, I may not be able to get them completely caught up to where they know second, third, fourth, and fifth grade math where the NWA shows, okay, this is where they started. How much did they learn this year? Even if they're not up to, you know, the grade standard, did they grow a certain amount this year? And I think that's more what we need to focus on is are the kids learning and are they growing than, oh, are they where they're supposed to be compared to everyone else? You know, every student is different. Every student learns differently, especially students that move in from different school districts or even different states are taught different standards and just taught different ways. I would like to see more focus on how much the students grow compared to how they are compared to everyone else. Mm-hmm. With our last few minutes, I think, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the ups and downs and things like that. Um, I'd like to hear from each of you about what what made this year worth it and what you're taking in to your next school year to be an even better teacher. And we'll start with you, Sarah. Um, I would say what made it worth it was my relationships with um, all of the people at Helmsburg, both my students and the other teachers. 
Um, it was just, it was so nice to be able to say goodbye on the last day of school, but know that there's another year coming and it's just, I'm really excited to go back to work. So I would say it's definitely worth it just because of the people that I met and um, I'm excited to meet my new class, but also um, to see my old kids and going on to third grade. So um, I think just to watch them grow up is going to be really fun. Um, I, I probably the same thing. Building the relationships with the students and the staff at Nora have been the highlight of my year. I think getting engaged in my classroom was mm-hmm. something that was, I'll. I mean, obviously, I'll remember it forever. But I think the students will too. I ran into a couple of my students with one of their parents at Target um, over the summer, and they're like, "Are you married to that girl yet?" <laughs> um, and it's just knowing that something that those kids will remember forever, and I can cherish too. Um, and next year, I look forward to taking things I learned throughout this entire year. You know, you had the whole summer to kind of digest it. I went to some professional development and got an idea of how to combine new stuff with what I'd already been doing and moving into a new school year with my new ideas and a um, set structure of what I want to try now based on my first year of experience. And Chris, we have less than a minute, so condense all of that in, in, in right. a few minutes. Well, they, they pretty much said it all. The, the best part of the job was definitely just building the relationships with the students and getting to know them on a personal level. Um, like Sarah said, I'm really excited to come back this school year, and they'll still be in my building as sixth graders. Mm-hmm. I'm just excited to see how much they've grown up over the summer and watch them grow mm-hmm. you know, from a different perspective this year when they're outside of my classroom. All of the stories I did over the past year are at indianapublicmedia.org slash the first year. We did a story about Gabe's engagement that happened in the classroom, which is one of my favorite that I've produced. So check that out. And um, we will put this conversation there as well. But that is all the time we have for today. I really thank you guys for coming and sharing all your experiences. And I'm so excited to stay in touch and see how next year goes. Um, but, I, you know, thanks, thanks again um, for our producer, Drew Dodlin, and engineer Michael Pascash. I'm Claire McInerney in this is Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.